Namaste. This is Maya Tiwari with Women's Power to Heal Mother Earth. Today's episode is called Awareness Heals Everything. Continuing from the last episode, episode 21, we're now in episode 22. The conversation about the present and about awareness, our great gift. I was fortunate to glean my life's purpose at a very early age. Wounds and scars were a continual passage that I have had to endure, conquer and understand along the way. I have come to recognize that our wounds make us stronger once we survive them. The power of grace which I glean from my elders, whose deeply scarred hearts open the conduits of indomitable strength. I learned at a very early age the skills and intelligence of survivalism. I have since discovered that it has been imbued in my genome. An inherent feature is the healing hands of my ancestors and the power that the universe bestowed upon me to continually heal the crises of life, my own life, while helping others to heal. Beautiful Vedic prayer comes to mind. I am me hasto bhagavan. I am me bhagavattaraha. I am me e vishwabhe e shajoyagum shiva bimarshanaha. My hands are the healing agents of the divine. After a quarter century of teaching Ayurveda in the U.S. and across the globe, while walking the path of a Vedic monastic, I was pushed by a compelling desire to grow beyond the natural trove of my healing gifts. But let me reflect back into my past story, the history that is the bedrock of my present, so that we can return with poise into our present awareness, the key to everything. I grew up in British Guyana, the British West Indies, in South America, in a village of less than 500 people, scattered along the mangrove-fringed coast of the Atlantic Ocean. To the west is Cuba, directly to the east is the vast Amazon forest inhabited by some of the world's most exclusive primordial species. As a child growing up, Guyana was a mysterious land, layered with Indian harmonics, African rhythms, and British hierarchies. I was not fully aware of my grandparents' experiences, but I had an intuitive sense of their emotional pain. In 1887, my paternal great-grandparents recruited by the British, 
left Lucknow with other Indians who sought a better life. Like bales of cotton, they were ferried across the ocean on a horrific journey where, among other savage acts, men and women were physically and emotionally abused. At the age of six or seven, perhaps, I had a strong impression that my own innocence had been violated, even though my people never spoke of their past. Somewhere within me, I carried an unconscious memory of the atrocities endured by my elders. The liquid state of my country, along with the prodigious sense of ancestral memory, gave me a deeper understanding of my own karma, karmas. In 1887, there was a severe drought in the country, which name, by the way, is derived from the original inhabitants of these lands, the aboriginals, and that meaning of Guyana is land of many waters. My great-grandfather was amongst the first to have come in the Indian expedition from India, and he was accompanied by a few priests, he was a Brahmin priest, to conduct a two-month-long Chandi Homa, which is a form of ceremony to appeal the heavens for rain. There had been a drought in the country. My paternal great-grandfather was a Brahmin Pujari, or priest. He had brought with him four other Pujaris to Guyana. At the time my great-grandfather arrived in Guyana with his wife, slavery of the forlorn African population had already been abolished. Many slaves left the sugarcane plantation to set up their own freeholdings and were being replaced by indentures, were indentured workers from India. The barbarism of slavery continued decades after its abolition. A vast network of British and Scots used the slave trade in Guyana as a get-rich-quick scheme, exploiting for profit the trafficked humans, both African slaves and indentured Indian laborers. Well, it was the trademark of colonialism. I was 12 years old when my uncle, who lived in the capital city of Georgetown, took me and my eldest sister for a visit to what they called the bush, which is in fact the hinterlands interior that stretched from Guyana into Brazil and Venezuela. Scientists had found that the Amerindian occupation of Guyana goes back as far as 1,200 years. But early colonization of these exquisite people, among them the Mayon Kongs, the Mayopitians, the Drios, the Terumas, the Amrepas, and the Pianogotos all disappeared, wiped out. The Amerindian tribe was once 90% of the hinderlands. Today, there is a mere 7%, if that. Their lifestyle 
destroyed by the occupation of European colonizers. I tell you this history because we are all formed in our physiological and emotional body and to some extent the psychic body as well. From the genome of our ancestry, the memories of our past, the ancestors. And although that also is the quota of our strength, it is the frangible ratio of our weaknesses and vulnerabilities as well. The original Guyana was inhabited by semi-nomadic Amerindian tribes, notably the Arawaks and the Caribs. It was divided by European powers into Spanish Guyana, which became Venezuela, Portuguese Guyana, which became Brazil, French Guyana, which remains French Guyana, and if you recall the movie with Steve McQueen, Papillon was filmed there in French Guyana. Dutch Guyana, which is capital of Suriname, and British Guyana, which is called Guyana. Just to give you a little bit of history, because it's important to my story. The British took over my country from the Dutch in 1814. It went back and forth between the European powers for a while until finally the British took ownership completely. In 1968, after Guyana's independence from Britain, Guyana headed towards racial civil war. My entire childhood was marked by the subtle imprints of pain from my elders, from their journey across the brutal oceans with the British and ended at the age of 16 when I, like all of my siblings, were exported to different countries to continue our studies because my parents realized that Guyana, once it became independent from British rule, was heading into a racial civil war, which was brewing for a long time. The big, the big substratum and motivation of colonizers was to divide and conquer, divide and rule, and therefore the African Guyanese were played against the Indian Guyanese, and like that it went on, perhaps still goes on, not perhaps very much so. But in 1968, after independence, something very remarkable happened. The United States was facing, during the Cold War, a devastating war with Cuba, impending war with Cuba. It's called the Bay of Pigs. That incident happened during the Kennedy administration. I was 16 years old at the time. My father saw that our country, Guyana, was going to be used by the United States military powers because it was strategically located across from Cuba. So they occupied Guyana. At the time, our first independent prime minister was an Indian politician by the name of Chedi Jagan. He was trained in Russia. He was a socialist uh, government, 
which didn't sit well with America's fear of the Cold War and America's fear of communism, and so he was ousted. The black militia government was enforced, and the racial wars, the killing of Indians, and eradication of the Indian population, more or less, began. Quickly, we were exported to various schools in the West. I came to New York City at the age of 16, and among my first home was an artist's colony in the West Village called Westbeth, beautiful, close to the Hudson River. But let's fast forward into the present decade. That story simply has to do with the formative years of my life, which was all about survivalism. It wasn't long after my journey into New York City and my beginning college there that I decided to leave the academic world and to do what was uniquely innate to my own ability, and that was to become a designer. But by the time I was 20, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. I kept my business, which was flourishing, running. I had my boutique and stores and in, on Madison Avenue itself, and also was building many small, unique boutiques and high fashion stores across America at a very early age. It was just a natural gift. But in any event, cancer took rule of my body and it was a very near fatal strain of ovarian cancer. There again, the talents and skills of survivalism came to my aid. That had been imprinted in the genome of my entire ancestral history, perhaps. At least the history that I'm aware of. And so, surviving ovarian cancer was not so much a miracle to me, although my doctors claim that it was, but it was part of the understanding that I could pretty much overcome anything that happened in my life. And that wasn't from ego, it was from a deep understanding of the powerful core strength that generation after generation of people that had been beaten down by the force of, in our case, the colonizers and, and, and uh, those that have actually uh, went against, that, that actually violated the natural laws of Mother Nature and created the beings that made survivalism a tool the work that I have done in the healing field of Ayurveda since I recovered from cancer at the age of, I think I was 23 when five-year journey into cancer, four or five years into cancer. I then closed up my uh, fashion operation, my big, huge business, and set back out to the motherland of India to reclaim my Vedic ancestry, to revisit that country, found 
a South Indian guru that taught me so much of the Vedas, Sanskrit. And then, so fast forward to now. I have been in the field of Ayurveda for 35 years. I started the Weisert School for Ayurveda, the first in North America, and also about 15, 20 years ago, 18 years ago, I started the Living Ahimsa World Tour. Ahimsa meaning nonviolence, creating inner harmony, creating world peace, wherein I designed a peace mandala program to help the citizens of our globe and communities to inculcate inner harmony so that we could stand united and realign with the powerful force of Mother Nature. I had recognized from my own trials and tribulations that we were going against the grain of the Great Mother and needed to reclaim it at a very organic level for us all to heal. This was a major shift for me. But I was to discover that it was neither a lateral, vertical, horizontal shift. Indeed, it was a quantum plunge into the abyss of self, completely unexpected. First off, I was disrobed by the universe and thrust into the sphere of love, personal love, for a particular man whom I recognized as my sole partner. I curtailed my journey as a Vedic monk and began a brand new life as a human person, spellbound by this virginal experience of childlike risibility. This was in 2010, a full decade ago. This feeling brought me the realization that all of my life I had fetched the heavy burdens of others simply because I was present and able to do so. It was the very first time that I felt the weightlessness of love, carefree and afloat with a profound and passionate love for this bewildered soul who could not respond to my native fiery affections. He ran. Thereafter, I was pelted into the cavernous abyss where darkness, dankness, and the disillusion, disillusionment dominated. Covert forces, as I said in my last episode, ripped any degree of maternal possession or control from me. My inner space revealed centuries of ancestral chaos, conflict and angst. I became frayed and enraged by the relentless nature of this experience. It showed me that wounds were still there to be discovered and healed, the past the past, the past. I subsisted there for nine years. I became fluent in using terrible curse words gleaned from New York City gangster diction, which I could never have brought myself to heretofore to mouth before. I had lost control of my living choices, my very vast forested compound where I live. I was stripped of my privacy. I was robbed of the sanity of my home and the sanctity of my environment. My body continually manipulated by remote devices and chemical warfare. 
my good health compromised, and cheerful disposition morose. I was always blessed with genetic intelligence, having won academic scholarships most of my young years. The survival skills innate to my ancestral genome gave me the power to scale differentiation and disparity with ease. But this was quite a different war. I felt unequipped, frustrated, lost like a rudderless boat in a stormy ocean. 3,000 days of interminable nights. Suddenly the world was locked down with an equally crazy virus, while an eclipse followed by five planets in retrograde, and then suddenly the sun appeared on the horizon. I had grown so weary of the storm, felt the utter futility of my intelligence, my mental intelligence, the knowledge, vast knowledge I had gained and learned, knowledge pinned to the experience of my ancestry, born in the Vedic tradition. And yet, the uselessness of my hard-earned survival skills Nothing applied here, in the new swath that had suddenly arisen. Only one skill carried the pass key, and I had missed it for nine years. That key was beyond beyond of my skills and ancestral memories, and the legacies of my past and the gifts of my past inheritance and the belief systems of my tradition. The past was a stranger to the past key. I was led by the risible power of love to it. But that love alone was not the answer. That too was a facet of my karmic past. But love did pave the way for the quantum leap into the present, where only awareness exists. Chit happens. C-H-I-T happens. <laughs> Listen again. Chit happens. Chit is awareness. That was the key. Until next time, peace be your journey. This is Maya Tiwari saying good night and thank you for listening. <laughs>